Thank you, Bob. Appreciate that. If you're depends on what schedule you're looking at. There is a discrepancy between uh, the booklet that you have and then some other schedules that are out there. But the booklet is the uh, correct schedule. So you have time to change if this is not where you wanted to be today. So we are glad that uh, you are here. We're going to be addressing the issue of prison ministry. We're going to be talking about a prison ministry that is effective. And I would argue that not all prison ministry is particularly effective. And so there are two components, I believe, that we're going to address today that will look at this and how this can be most effective. One, I believe that prison ministry must be holistic. It must address the whole person. And it also must be collaborative. And that involves a working together uh, for a common cause and a common good. As has been addressed in a number of the sessions, uh, this is a very difficult problem. We look at incarceration, mass incarceration in this country, and then trying to help men and women uh, who are coming out of prison and to come out and to help them with a new life. And so it's going to take a lot of resources and a lot of people uh, to make that happen. So I want to talk about some things with this, and we may have time at the end. And I want to use this scripture kind of as a launching pad. And of course, Jesus uh, references this in Matthew 25. It is on our shirts uh, where he says, I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was naked, you clothed me. You know, I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came into me. And we look at these verses and we use these in a sense as kind of a defining moment of what we we're involved in in prison ministry. But I want us to think about this because I want to address what Matthew 25 does not answer and what is not found in that particular text. It does not tell us what challenges we're going to face in prison ministry. It does tell us that when we go, uh, we're not necessarily going there to bring Christ per se. We're going there to meet Christ. Christ is there. And so when you go to the prisons, you go to meet Him. And so that is one thing that we think about. There are many challenges that are involved uh, in this particular effort. Also, and this to me is at the end of the day, um, the defining uh, number that we need to look at when it comes to prison ministry. And we certainly can talk about uh, the impact of one, and we don't want to lose sight of that. When we uh, lead someone and they come to know Christ, then we know that that has made a powerful difference in the kingdom of God. But at the end of the day, if you're going out and you're working in prison ministry, if you are obviously trying to raise funds uh, for prison ministry uh, to make this happen, uh, the question they're going to ask you is what you are doing, is it reducing the recidivism rate? Is it making a difference in men and women who are coming out of prison? Is it helping them to be successful in reentry? And is it keeping them from returning to prison? In the state of Tennessee, and it is slightly different across all of the states, but in Tennessee, the recidivism rate is 46% in three years. And so 46% that are released from prison in our state will return within three years. And so is what we are doing, is it effective? Is it making a difference? Is it helping these men and women to be successful when they leave prison and when they re-enter our community? And that is part of what we're trying to think about and address in this as well. And then also to think about what is involved in visiting the incarcerated. What is implied with this? Um, is this just simply involved in going and uh, making a visitation, you know, and having a, a pastoral session, going having a Bible study? Uh, 
what are we thinking about when we're talking about visiting those in prison and what does all of that mean and what is impacted by that. Now, I want to think about, as we go along, some of the unhealthy thoughts that we will encounter in regard to prison ministry. And you can expect these thoughts to actually, in some cases, to be expressed by people. Uh, sometimes they're expressed by those in the institutions that are working there. Sometimes these thoughts and these words and these um, statements are made by those in our churches. And there are even those, and of multiple cases, of uh, even preachers that have made at least one of the statements that I'm going to show you uh, here in just a moment. The incarcerated are getting what they deserve. Well, to some extent, yes, a person who is incarcerated is receiving a consequence for what they have done. But when they use the expression, they're getting what they deserve, then somehow that alleviates me of any responsibility to go to them. Well, they're just being punished for their crimes, and therefore they're getting what they deserve. I don't have any responsibility to that. When you look at the incarcerated, there are many different factors as to why what is incarcerated. As was mentioned, uh, we have a summer camp for children of the incarcerated. Uh, I just survived a week of 82 of them, an entire week. Uh, I don't know how I made it through that experience. But you can start looking at the things that are going on in their lives at the ages of 8, 9, and 10 years old that are factors that will contribute to their incarceration as an adult. When you have grandma who is raising four kids because mom is in the Tennessee prison for women and those four kids have four different fathers and grandma is 70 years old and her husband died last year and she's trying to raise them and she don't even know what to do. And to manage them is a huge challenge. And so, you know, it's not just that one day somebody just wakes up and says, I'm going to go commit a crime. There's a lot of factors that go on and many of the women that are incarcerated have been abused in their life, physically, sexually, and oftentimes, for those of us in prison ministry, they have a charge partner, and that charge partner is a man <laughs> that they were with. And so they were with a man that was doing something, and so when it went down, they got locked up too. And so just to simply say, well, they get what they deserve, there's a lot of things that go on that contribute to incarceration. We're not all born in the best family. Some are. Some are not, and so we need to understand that. Another thing that I sometimes will hear is the incarcerated will not change or cannot change. I went to River Bend, Maximum Security Prison, and I was met by an officer. And as I was going through the process of, of being checked in, he said to me, it must be really discouraging to be involved in a ministry where nobody's going to change. <laughs> And I said to him, I said, sir, if I believe that, I wouldn't be doing this. <laughs> Change is possible. It's not always easy. We realize that transformation is a, a, a lifetime process. It takes a lot of resources that happens for that person to bring about change. But I'm sure that no doubt that here we believe that people that are incarcerated with support, with a right spirit, can bring about change. I had a lady in our congregation, and they're sweet lady, uh, older lady. And uh, here I am directing prison ministry. And she said to me, Thomas, I am against what you're doing. I said, well, thank you. <laughs> and uh, she said, you know, my family, we were victims of crime. 
And, and these folks will not change. And I said, well, most all of us as volunteers have been victims of crime at one time. But we believe that ultimately we are called to help them to have a new life. And so that's one of the things that's sometimes expressed. Now this is what I've heard from a number of preachers in the fellowship of even our own uh, of the churches of Christ. And that is this one. Matthew 25 only applies to those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Therefore, we have no obligation to go to them. And I've heard this just recently of someone in a pulpit who took this very position. Now, there is no doubt that many of those that were in prison in the first century were there because they were being persecuted for righteousness' sake. There's not questioning about that. But when you start looking at the history of God working for humanity, where does God work? Does God work in our lives when we get everything together? God goes to us in our mess. God went to Israel not because they were godly, but because of His mercy and because of His promise. They went into Babylonian captivity. And in Ezekiel 37, it says that Ezekiel saw a valley of dry bones. Why were they in captivity? For a righteous life? No. They worshipped idols. They were involved in all kinds of immorality. And yet they breathed His breath onto those bones and they came and they formed life. God comes to us in our brokenness, not when we are all fixed. It's Christ who does the fixing, not ourselves. And so this idea that our only responsibility is just simply to go to people who are being persecuted for righteousness, saying, therefore, well, we live in America where we have freedom, therefore, guess what? We don't have any responsibility. That really is a, a misuse of Scripture. And I think that it's very sad, and so I would not be surprised if you have to encounter that uh, in those with prison ministry. Now, let's think about just a few of these uh, scriptures. Ephesians 2 and verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. We are saved, all of us are sinners. We're all saved by grace, whether in prison or in the free world. And so at the end of the day, it is God's mercy that brings about our salvation. Salvation is about receiving what we don't deserve. <laughs> if we did deserve it, Christ wouldn't have come. We could have done it on our own, but that's not possible. And so therefore, it's about what He does in our life. Also, people say, well, folks in prison can't change. Just recently, we have um, been involved in opening up this reentry center in Nashville. And we're actually having our grand opening uh, in about 10 days. And so before we went out and started work on the building because we're in a residential neighborhood and we're going to have a service, a Sunday service, we're going to have 12-step uh, celebrate recovery meetings on Sunday, we're going to have job training and job placement and all of those things. I went out and Grant in the back, we went out and we knocked doors. And we, and I took my business card and I said, my name is Thomas Snow, I'm the executive director of the Tennessee Prison Outreach Ministry and we are opening up a reentry center in your neighborhood. And this is where it's it. This is our location. And these are the things that we're going to be doing. And if you ever have any concerns, here's my business card. I want you to call me before you call anybody else. And we had a very positive response in our neighborhood, except for our next door neighbor. <laughs> and he got really upset. And he used a lot of words that I'm not going to use here today. Uh, <laughs> I don't use any time. 
and he made the statement. He said, I am an expert on the criminal mind. And he became an expert by watching a movie about criminals. He, actually, this is a movie he watched called Clockwork Orange. That's what he watched. And so he's an expert on the criminal mind. And he said, criminals cannot change. So one day he called the office and he talked to Naomi, who works for the ministry. And if you were in Naomi's session, Naomi's been in prison. And so he started telling her about how criminals will not change and all of this. And she said, oh, by the way, I've been in prison. And he said, one in a million. <laughs> so, <laughs> the power to change, though, is not within ourselves. It's within God's Spirit. God's Spirit, His power, the Holy Spirit. He is the one that indwells us as Christians and empowers us, according to Romans 8 and verse 11, to bring about the change in our life. And so it's not within my power, it's within his power. And so when we say that folks in prison cannot change, we're simply saying that God can't change hearts. Remember what was told to Abraham and Sarah, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And so Christ saves us, not while doing right, but while under the bondage of Satan, Luke 4, 18 and 19. Now let's talk another about aspect of unhealthy prison ministry. I've said that prison ministry needs to be holistic and also needs to be collaborative. In our churches, we have folks that I call doing the Lone Ranger prison ministry. They really do. When I first started and part of my dissertation was uh, in Memphis to try to help establish a collaborative prison ministry in metropolitan Memphis. And I met a guy that I was told was involved in prison ministry. So I went to lunch, took him to lunch at Cracker Barrel, and he said, oh, I'm doing this great work for the Lord. I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I have four services. I have a, sun, a service every Sunday in Whiteville. This was a number of years ago. And then he said, and I have four services in the afternoon at Hardman County, which is right down the street. Then I have services at the protective custody. And I do this every single Sunday, three worship services every single Sunday in two different facilities. And I said, well, who's helping you? Well, nobody. This is my ministry. Let me tell you something. It's not your ministry. It's the Lord's ministry. And it's that kind of faulty thinking that contributes to problems in prison ministry because people think of this is my turf. This is my area. A number of years ago when I was pulpit minister before we sang off projection, I had a lady that her job was to put up songbooks after service. Somebody decided to help her one Sunday. She got bent out of shape. Well, that's my job. <laughs> and folks are like that with prison ministry. Sometimes they don't want anybody else to be in their area. What happened was with this guy that was doing Whiteville in Hardman County, and I told him, I said, what you're doing is not good. I said, it's not effective. He got in trouble. He lost his badge. And all those services were lost. And we had to work to restart those. And now we've got churches working together and a whole lot of folks helping to cover those services. And it's simply much more effective than one person doing their own thing. How do I know if I'm involved in solo prison ministry? Well, I don't train anybody else. 
Let me tell you something. If you're involved in prison ministry, you have to be training and developing other people to be involved. I told somebody yesterday I could go into the jail in Nashville and I could go in and I could visit men or women. I could go all day long, five days a week. I'm not saying I couldn't do any good, but if I go out and train others to do it, and then they train others, then you multiply your efforts by so much more, and much more is accomplished. And so I think about what's said here in Mark 9, 38 through 40, and of where teacher, they said to, they said, we saw someone driving out demons, John says this, in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not of us. And he said, do not stop him, he said, for no one does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say something bad about me. This verse is about holding on to power. The problem here is that they wanted to do something that nobody else could do. And they got all bent out of shape when there were other folks doing what they were doing. And so there are cases where we see people have a flawed understanding of prison ministry. If you are doing, and I've encountered this not far from here, we're in one entire jail facility, one brother going in with nobody else. I would say to you it's not effective. Certainly not what it needs to be by a long shot. It takes many more people to be involved, uh, to support each other and to help each other uh, in this work if we're really going to make a difference. And besides, and I'll just say this as well, if you're in it by yourself and the congregation that you're a part of does not have some level of support of what you are doing, you're not going to be effective because when they get out, they're going to want to go to church where you do. And if they are not welcome to go to church with you, then I ask you, why are you involved in prison ministry? I know it's pretty strong, but I believe that. If they are not welcome to come to church with me, then why am I going in the jails? And so, to be effective, I've got to get some folks involved. If we were in the session before, if some of y'all were in uh, Dr. Hufford's session, he talked about spending some time working on some of our church folks, <laughs> helping them to move them along so they can be embracing and welcoming, as we heard last night, of those that are incarcerated. Effective prison ministry must be holistic. Now, I want to talk about this to some degree, and uh, I want to look at some verses today uh, to help us and reflect on this. One of the things that we have done uh, a good job in um, and that we have been involved in for many uh, years, and that is leading people to Christ, and we need to always keep that at the forefront. We want to restore relationships with God. Uh, that is critical. However, when you think about prison ministry being holistic, baptizing people, leading them to Christ is necessary, but it is not sufficient in and of itself. There needs to be more past the baptism. You can go in, and you, I, I know this is true, you can go into your facilities and we can baptize lots of people. Lots of people. And many of you have been involved in that, leading many, many people to Christ. And that is wonderful. We commend you for that. We give God the glory for that. But we need to do more than just that. So let's talk about the leper's re uh, restoration. In Luke 5, verses 12 through 14, I just want to mention this very quickly. And I'm not going to read all of these scriptures because I don't have time. 
But I want to talk about this one in particular because I think it is uh, very relevant. Because when we read this, we say this is just a simply a, a healing narrative. But there's more to it than that. When Jesus was in the towns, there was a man covered with a skin disease. And when he saw him, Jesus, he bowed down before him and begged him and said, Lord, if you, can, if you will, you can heal me. And he reached out his hand and he touched the man and he said, I will be healed. And immediately the disease disappeared. And Jesus said, don't tell anyone about this, but go and show yourself to the priest and others as a gift for your healing, as Moses commanded, and this will show the people what I have done. And you might say, well, okay, that's nice. Jesus did a miracle. He was performing a healing narrative. He healed a leper. Let me tell you something. When you look in the Bible in Luke and Leviticus 13, and you look in verses 41 and following, and you start reading the life of a leper. This was their life. They lived alone. They lived in leper colonies. They lived outside of their community. They had to cover their upper lip. And when anyone came near, they would cry out, Unclean! Unclean! In verses 45 and 46. And they were shunned, they were rejected by their community. So by Jesus healing the leper, He doesn't just simply heal the man of his disease, although He does that, but by healing the man of his disease, He's able to restore this man to his community. Because now, guess what? He can go back home. He can go back to his city. He can go back to his family. He can go back to his loved ones. And he's no longer shunned. He is now embraced. And so effective prison ministry, yes, is leading them to Christ, but it's also helping them to be restored to their community. And that's not easy, is it? Because many times our community looks at those who are coming out of prison as being a threat. And they're automatically perceived as being dangerous. I'm not saying this never happened, but they're always perceived in that view. And because of fear and because of anxiety, it's difficult for them to obtain acceptance. And that is part of the reason why we have this issue as well. And I'm going to get in my session tomorrow, uh, I'm not going to get into that today, but when I deal with sex offenders, that's a whole other issue in the church. You think there's anxiety with somebody coming out with a murder charge, wait till they have a sex offender charge and they're on the registry. Uh, that's another matter. So restoration, we're about not just healing, we're about restoring them to their community and helping them gain acceptance. And we want to welcome them into our community of faith uh, Jesus changed lives, Matthew chapter 7, 22 and 23, uh, healing the blind, uh, those that were lepers. Look in chapter 7 and verse 36. And I'm not going to read all of this. This is the sinful woman that comes to Jesus, and he has been invited to a banquet. And as he's at this banquet, um, you know, there are those that are very judgmental uh, because they only gave out special invitations to people in their group. And many of those were excluded. And so here is this woman who is known in her community as uh, being of unsavory character. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us maybe she's a prostitute. She is one who is known for her sin. And so what happens is she shows up uninvited. She goes to the, Jesus. She goes to His feet. She falls down. She begins wiping His feet uh, with her hair. And so... He goes on down and Jesus addresses this. 
And he talks about her sins. He says, her sins, which are many, uh, are forgiven. So she showed great love. And the person who is forgiven only a little will love only a little. This is in verse 47. And then he says in the last verse, he says, because you have believed, you are saved from your sins. This woman was rejected by her community. But what does Jesus do? He embraces her and brings her in to community. And He condemns those who would not accept her. And so to be holistic means to help these men and women to have acceptance uh, in our community. Um, I'm not going to read Luke 8, 26 and 39. It's about the demoniac, uh, how he was healed. And he was to go back and to tell his community the great things that God had done for him. He was living alone in the tombs cutting himself, screaming out at night, ripping his clothes off, acting like a crazy man. And uh, he's healed and he goes back home. He is restored to his community. I believe that that's what we must be about. We must be about bringing people into our community of faith and into our neighborhoods to where they are accepted and where they are embraced. And so the woman with the flow of the blood just left that there for you to make note of that. Uh, she was also rejected in her community. Anybody that touched her was unclean. The couch that she sat on was unclean. Jesus brought her back and restored her to her community, and that's what we're doing as well. Our human nature requires a holistic approach of emotional, a social, a spiritual, and a physical needs. We are, we are one, but we have different components, and we have all of these needs. We're one human nature, but one of the needs that we have is physical. One of the things that you're going to hear about in our sessions, and you have already heard it many times over, is about the physical needs of those coming out of prison, coming out of jail. And so part of that is they don't have an ID. Part of that is they you know, have a challenge about where they're going to live. Uh, part of that is where they're going to obtain employment, maybe Getting the employment issue solved is going to solve the housing issue. But those are needs that they have. Uh, if you are in uh, Nashville, for example, uh, it may be a little bit easier uh, to solve some of these problems than if you are uh, living in Gibson County or some rural area where things are a little bit more difficult. But I do believe that we have a responsibility to try to help these men and women with those particular issues because if we do not we're setting them up for failure that is part of our responsibility and I have been noticing over the past few years that um, uh, with us and in our fellowship there is much more emphasis that's being placed on reentry than there has been in the past that's at least my observation and I think that's a good thing we're focusing on this more of helping these men and women to acclimate into the community, to be successful in the community, to reduce the recidivism rate, to help them to be successful coming in and coming out. Uh, we also have emotional needs. People need safety. They need acceptance. They need love. Uh, they need to know that they are embraced. Many of those that are in prison, uh, they really need acceptance. That was discussed last night. They need to know that people care about them. Unfortunately, uh, many of those that are incarcerated have burned a lot of bridges. They really have. They burn bridges with family. They burn bridges with friends. Uh, and at some point, you know, when you've been used a few times, <laughs> you kind of put up your guard, don't you? And so when you burned all your bridges, even when you want to do right, 
what about all your family? Well, they've already got their guard up, right? Because you've already used them too many times. And so even if they're sincere, they can't often go back because their family's thinking, well, there, here it goes again. I've heard this story again, <laughs> right? And so we have got to be willing to try to walk alongside them and to help them and to let them know that they are accepted, that they are embraced, that they are welcomed, that they are loved. They need that. Sitting, teaching a class a number of years ago with a, as a group of women in the jail. Uh, I normally don't teach women, I normally would teach men, but we didn't have a female teacher at the time. Thankful we do now. And I remember a woman sitting there in my class and she had all of these cut marks. She was a cutter. A beautiful young lady, but her arms were all cut up. And she described the pain and all the things that she had gone through and all the abuse. And she was just looking for some kind of outlet, some way to alleviate the hurt uh, that was in her life. She was looking for acceptance, uh, looking for somebody that would embrace her. She'd been rejected by her family. Uh, she'd been mistreated and abused and uh, just trying to find a way of relief. And so we see a lot of people and that's what they need. Uh, social needs. Uh, this is a part of community involvement. Um, this is important. They need to be accepted in their community. And they also, uh, this is also not an easy issue, and that is if you're going to be involved in prison ministry and we're trying to move in that direction, is helping them with family reunification. Yes, sir. That's needed. You know, here we are working with the, the parents that are in prison. Then we're running camp for children of the incarcerated. Now we've got to get the two together. <laughs> And, um, and that's, a that's a challenging process. You know, Dad's been in prison. He's been in for 10 years. He gets out. He's going to come back home and be Dad. And them teenagers are not going to accept that. <laughs> They're not going to accept that. And so we got to work with them and try to counsel them and, and help them through that process. And ultimately what we want is to help these men and women that are in prison with parenting skills, helping them classes with that so that they can come out and then slowly get back into their homes and then be responsible and take care of their children because their children are greatly at risk of incarceration themselves. They really are. Two main predictors of incarceration, number one is dropping out of high school, number two is a parent behind bars. And so we want to help them with that. And then also they need spiritual needs. They need um, forgiveness, a value system, and a connectedness to a faith community. And so if a person is coming out, they need to be a part of a spiritual family. And that is part of our responsibility as Christians to help and to have a place for them to go. Now let's talk about it just very quickly. Uh, James 2, 14 to 17. Yes. How do we get the, the church to give them this acceptance? You know? that's, well, that's a big problem. it is. I think that part of that, um, and what I have seen is that when you have someone that is coming out and when you have several in that congregation that will accept him or her, that that is where it starts. And then I think that as you see other people are seeing this person and saying, hey, they're not really that scary. <laughs> you know, he's up there leading prayer. Uh, and, you know, she's over there and she's, you know, doing what she's... Then it helps to build that level of trust and you will slowly start to see some growth and some involvement in your church in prison ministry. Uh, but that is, that is something that we must address. Um, but 
There is, there is no place you can take a person coming out of prison where everybody in your congregation is going to embrace them. If you're, if you're looking for that, you're going to be disappointed. Quit trying. But you need to have some that will welcome them. Maybe it's a, a life group on a Sunday night that you may have or a, a Bible class that will take that person and work with them. It only takes a few that can really start helping and then it will start growing from there and you will have more people who will get involved uh, with that as well. But yes, we have to work on that. We have to address this issue in our churches. And so uh, I want to say this real quickly. Uh, I was speaking in, uh, to a number of churches and uh, they had asked me to come and make a presentation uh, about prison ministry. So I was talking about all of this and talking about being holistic. And this one guy was sitting there and he said, well, Mr. Snow, I've heard all of that. And he said, uh, and I believe our responsibility is to baptize people, and that is it, and I'm out of here. And he got up, and he walked out, and I said, well, there you go. Have a nice day. There are people like that, but what does this verse say? What does this verse say? Well, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone comes to you and has faith but no deeds? Can faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister has need of clothes or daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, and do nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? What good is it? We have to address this. We have this responsibility. Faith by itself, not accompanied by works, uh, will not be successful. And it must be collaborative. We'll talk about this very quickly. I'm not going to read all these scriptures. I don't have time. Uh, we can go to ne uh, Nehemiah 2.17. Nehemiah is a case of where they've gone back. They've rebuilt the temple. The wall has not been rebuilt. They all work together to accomplish something very good. And says they rise up together. They work together in a collaborative effort uh, to make this happen. Uh, I think about multiple, uh, multiplication of efforts. When Jesus went out and chose the 12, then he chose the 70. Uh, what is he doing? He's multiplying efforts. That's part of collaboration. It's multiplying what you do. You can do a lot, but if you recruit 10, guess what you've just done? Far more than what you're going to do alone. So we must be involved uh, in this principle of collaboration. The Grecian widows, this is in Acts 6, 1 through 4, they're being neglected. The church comes together to resolve this crisis. And the one I want to talk about for just a couple of minutes, and this is the one that to me is the most significant, and this is collaboration uh, with Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church with the number of trials. They had gone to Jerusalem at Pentecost, many of them were baptized, they stayed behind in Jerusalem, there was a famine, uh, there were a lot of needs, and Paul took it upon himself to be involved in a collection. So we'll go to 2 Corinthians with me. If you've got a Bible, if not, just listen to what I'm about to say. Chapter 9. And he talks about uh, what all we're doing, all the blessings uh, that he would have. Actually, it's, uh, we think about this, and, and it's just so significant uh, of what he's talking about. He says, I don't need to write to you about this help for God's people. I know that you want to help. I've been bragging about you to those in Macedonia, telling them that they have been ready since last year. And then he goes on down and he says, 